talking benefits. 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 Talking. Talking. Talk a little bit about benefits. Yeah, benefits. Talking benefits. You are listening to Talking Benefits. Every month, we cover the top stories in retirement and healthcare, the latest benefits, hot topics, and whatever else the industry throws at us. I'm Justin Held. I'm Ann Patterson. I'm Julie Stick. And I'm Kelly Colesrude. Now let's talk benefits. Welcome back, everyone. This is our third and final episode in our three-part series on mental health. If you haven't already done so, scroll back in your podcast feed and take a listen to January's episode on mental and emotional health, as well as February's episode on employee stress. But this month, we're talking about addiction and how it impacts the workplace. We all know that substance abuse is a very serious societal issue, but it also directly affects the workplace. It's difficult to know the full impact of addiction, but I recently found stats from the federal government's Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, or SAMHSA. The recent report stated that more than 70% of people with a substance abuse problem maintain employment in at least some form. So an employer may not even be aware of the total number of employees with substance abuse issues in their workplace. Oh yeah, I remember discussing this in our first episode. Employees work hard to hide this problem from their employers and their colleagues. In many cases, they may lose their personal relationships and home life, but still manage to hold on to their jobs. Yeah, this 70% statistic really resonates with me. I have a family history of substance abuse issues, and I saw that firsthand in a couple of my relatives. I guess from a practical perspective, it makes sense that people try to maintain their job because they need their wages, their salaries for survival purposes and also because of their addiction. But I do see another reason. I think it's a kind of a bit more symbolic one, and I'm just theorizing here based on what I've seen, but it seems like the job is one thing that if they can manage to hold on to that, it's a symbol that they're somehow still managing to hold their life together. It's something that's still working in their life, and it's something they can take some pride and accomplishment from. Or maybe it's even a coping mechanism like, you know, I I can still go to work and function fine there, and so I don't have a problem. And for people who are going through that, Julie, in the first episode of this three-part series, we identified warning signs that indicate a coworker might be coping with this and and have a problem. So things like their absences might be more frequent, they seem disengaged, and the quality of their work is changing. Maybe it's not up to par. There can also be personality changes, and you might even notice differences in their appearance. And I think going with your gut instinct is always important. You never know how serious the situation might be, and this could really save somebody's life. Randy Kratz from FEI Behavioral Health put it perfectly in that first episode when he said, if you know this person at their best, you're going to notice when they aren't at their best. Speaking of guests, we brought in an expert to give us insight into this specific issue. Let's go to our interview with today's guest, Andy Johnson. Kelly interviewed him a few days ago. So I'm happy that we have joining with us Andy Johnson. Andy, do you want to introduce yourself and tell us what you do? Absolutely. I am the fund administrator of the Teamster Center Services Fund, which is a Taft-Hartley Trust Fund located in Manhattan, New York City. We don't have any direct participants, but we provide services to member Teamster benefit plans throughout New York and New Jersey. Okay, and some of the services you provide, aren't they similar to what an EAP provides, for example, an employee assistance program? Absolutely. We are very similar in that we provide advice and referral. 
In addition to standard EAP services, we also serve as the behavioral health gatekeeper. So we're on the back of all the cards. So anyone, even a social worker who wants to check coverage on a patient, would be calling our office. We also do all the case management for inpatient and partial behavioral health admissions. And then finally, we also do what's called SAP, Substance Abuse Professional Services, which are the services that are needed for someone who's a commercial driver who gets in trouble due to drugs in order to get them back to safety-sensitive position. So what are the main types of treatment for substance abuse? The main levels of substance abuse treatment, and and I guess I'll give them to you in decreasing uh, severity, is number one would be medical detoxification. The next level would be residential. And then the the next level is partial hospitalization. The patient is living off-site but coming in for a very long day of treatment. Then the next lower level would be intensive outpatient. That generally is three hours per session, and that can be five nights a week. It can be three nights a week. And then finally, traditional outpatient, where someone may come in once a week to meet with a therapist. The only other addition was also MATS, medical assisted treatment. That's really someone going on a medication to help them deal with withdrawal and maintain sobriety. What variables determine the best type of treatment for a given addiction? There's actually several important variables. First of all, any addiction is an incredibly complex situation. So you have multiple things going on. You have the drug of abuse. What is the person using? It's often not one thing. It's often multiple drugs. Uh, What's the patient's pattern of use? Are they using just on weekends? Are they using every single day? Are they using multiple times a day? And then also, and this is also very common and very overlooked, the presence of coexisting disorders. You know, patients may have a suffer from anxiety, depression. There's a whole new school of thought out there that's really come into play in the treatment world in the last year or two about trauma, that people begin using drugs because of some trauma that they've had in their life, and if they don't address that trauma, they're just going to keep relapsing. So trauma-informed treatment is now a new thing I'm hearing all the time from different treatment programs. And then finally, what's the patient's environment like? Well, the environment they're living in, does it support recovery? You can spend lots of money. You can have someone go away for 28 days to the best treatment program in the country. But if they come back home and people are using in the house or their best friends are using and they don't establish themselves in a sober environment, then all your treatment money is wasted. Unless they really go out of their way, and it is a really strong, hard thing to do, establish themselves in a different environment. And that may be saying goodbye to all your drug-using friends. It may be going to self-help meetings when you've got other things you'd rather be doing. But these are the kind of factors that really will affect someone's ability to get sober. Yes, that does sound like a complicated set of variables. The hot topic these days is opioid addiction. Is opioid addiction more difficult to treat than other types of addiction? It is. It is for a couple reasons. It's extremely difficult to recover from. There's, there's just multiple ways that opiates uh, affect the human body. You know, opioids are excellent at what they do. They're great for numbing pain. The human brain actually has opioid receptors that these opioids lock right onto when someone uses them. And then, unfortunately, the repeat use of opioids causes that person to develop a tolerance, the steady need for more and more of the drug in order to achieve the desired effect. And then, finally, and this may be, this is probably the issue that keeps people using over and over and over again is once a person begins regularly using opioids, withdrawal kicks in when they stop. And withdrawal can be extremely, extremely uncomfortable. This triggers the desire to use opioids again. And a lot of people will tell you 
that they don't continue to use opioids to get high. They simply continue to use opioids to avoid withdrawal because the withdrawal is just so severe. The most successful methods for treating opioid addiction, it seems to be a combination of psychoeducation, having the person learn about their addiction, how it affected their body, how it affected them socially, how it affected them in their family and their other relationships, and then psychotherapy, particularly group psychotherapy. Group therapy, you know, just sitting in a room with other addicts, when you tell a lie, the other addicts will be very quick to call you on it. Group therapy is incredibly effective for any addiction, but also especially for opioids. Finally, with opioids, the state of the art of treatment in the last year or two has really been you really need to put them on a medication that if someone has been regularly abusing opioids, for them to come out and be on nothing. And this is controversial. There are some, you know, self-help NAAA meetings who will tell you you don't need to be on anything or you shouldn't be on anything. But the reality is that many people nowadays who establish long-term sobriety from opioid dependence are on something. They're given buprenorphine, which is you know, the brand name is Suboxone, and or naltrexone, and um, it just really reduces the cravings. I mean, someone who's in recovery from opioids, you can have the best laid out plan, get in your car, get ready to drive to the grocery store, and halfway there, just your cravings, you just make a turn, go down the street, and go buy drugs. It's a very strong pull on them. So do they only need to take these drugs while they're withdrawing, or is it something that has to be done long-term? It really is a maintenance. You know, when Suboxone first came out, it was, okay, we're going to have people on it for, you know, five or six months, and then they'll be off. Well, uh, we work with patients who've been on it for five years. You know, on one level, you'd say, well, gee, that's not a success. Well, but that person's working. They're able to totally function and live a regular life just like everybody else. They're productive and they're sober. But without that medication, they would really have issues, and probably those things of being employed and being sober wouldn't be the case. So we've just kind of learned that, you know, for some people, they really do need to be on it for several years. As we were prepping for this episode, we ended up talking about the opioid epidemic and shared personal stories about times that we were prescribed large quantities of opioids for relatively minor medical procedures. Yeah, I am. Um, uh, this was many years ago, but I had meningitis and I had the world's worst headache, I will admit, but I was really surprised. I was prescribed like 30 days of Vicodin or something like that. And I went home and I took one and it was awful. And then I managed it with Advil after that. But I remember thinking, yikes, you know, they gave me this big prescription. And Yeah, my friend recently just within the last couple of years, had an outpatient surgical procedure, and she was not experiencing a high level of pain. But I tell you, they did not want me to leave that hospital until I had filled the prescription for her. And it was not just a couple pills, it was a full prescription. I do think that's starting to change. We're hearing more and more about providers and pharmacies that are starting to limit the number of pills that get included in an initial prescription for opioids. And I do want to say that certainly not everyone who is prescribed opioids becomes addicted. And opioids have their place. Certainly when used with a pain management program, people with chronic pain can be on maintenance opioids and do do fine on that, right? So it's not in every instance that there's a problem, but certainly there have been problems in the past, and I think employers are paying more attention to that. Yeah, as you said, employers are starting to institute some coverage limits. 
In our recent mental health and substance abuse survey, we asked employers to tell us what methods they're using specifically to combat opioid abuse. A third of those responding require prior authorization for outpatient opioid prescriptions, and that is in excess of a specified number of days. Uh, about a quarter of employers limit the number of pills allowed after a surgery and about half use a carrier prescription drug monitoring program or a pharmacy benefit manager or PBM. That's interesting data, Justin. I bet the prevalence of those limits will continue to grow. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, we are going to take a quick break, and then we'll be back with more of Kelly's interview with Andy. This April 2nd is National Employee Benefits Day. It's only the best day of the year. Once a year, the International Foundation celebrates those in the benefits industry with a day of great topics and resources that they can bring back to plan participants. This year's theme is resilience, so employers will be able to learn about how to help employees better bounce back from life's dresses through a free webcast, video, tip sheets, data findings, and more. You can head to ifebp.org slash benefits day for more information and be sure to mark your calendars for National Employee Benefits Day on April 2nd, 2019. It's difficult to know the full impact of addiction on the workplace, but according to the National Council on Alcoholism and Drug Dependence, it's estimated that alcohol and substance abuse costs employers more than $81 billion each year. These costs are due to several factors that we've mentioned in past episodes, reductions in productivity, higher absenteeism, more sick time being used, and of course, higher turnover rates. Plus, often there can be more workplace accidents, lower quality of work being performed, workplace theft, reduced employee morale, and of course the obvious increase in health care and workers' comp costs. Kelly talked about treatment costs in her interview with Andy, so let's rejoin them. I'd like to explore how plan sponsors and employers can help manage the costs. One of the first steps is to find reliable treatment centers. And I know there are some groups out there that are taking advantage of the desperate need for these services. So a plan sponsor really needs to beware of those types of providers, don't they? Yes. Unfortunately, as the opioid epidemic happened, the unethical treatment program epidemic happened. So the substance abuse treatment world is really a minefield with way too many unethical treatment programs. Just, you know, to be honest, lying in wait on the Internet to lure addicts and their desperate families into their programs. And even though I do this for a living, I can tell you detecting the bad actors is extremely difficult because the one thing they do very well and invest a lot of their money into is setting up these facades, especially online, to give them the appearance of being honest and safe places to get treatment. And as far as what can a plan do, to me a big first step that employers and health plans can take to help their members and themselves is by communicating with their participants and making them aware of some really important information. This information would include several things. Number one, the rules of your benefit plan regarding treatment coverage. Is pre-certification required? What do we cover? What do we not cover? Any internal resources for accessing treatment, especially if a plan has an employee assistance program or a member assistance program or has, you know, partnered with another group to get information for their members. We've been part of some funds since 1962, and a member will call us and say, yeah, no one's ever told me about you. 
well, we're in the benefit book. We may be on a poster at their job site, but they just missed it. So it's important that plan sponsors communicate with their members and say, hey, we understand there's an epidemic. We understand people have needs for treatment. Here's how we cover it. Here's what resources we have for you. And then lastly, I would say it's really important that plans address the issue of unethical treatment programs. So it's important that plan sponsors let their members know, hey, these guys are out here. They are looking to get you and lure you in, and it's not to treat you or your loved one. They're there simply to milk your insurance money till it's gone. Well, and that brings up kind of another question. How can plan coverage be designed to promote effective results without excessive costs? I mean, I know that's the million-dollar question, isn't it? But Yeah, I wish it was only a million. <laughs> um, yes, there are some very significant design issues that plans need to look at in order to offer both, because you, you don't want to block it where no one can go to treatment. First of all, you'd be in violation of the parity law, but at the same time, you don't want to leave the door wide open to fraud and abuse. So here's how you can do that. Some things that funds can do would be take a look at their out-of-network coverage rules. What are you allowing out-of-network? Unethical treatment programs tend to not be contracted with insurance carriers. Mm -hmm. Therefore, you know, plans that cover in-network services only are much less likely to incur huge treatment bills from an unscrupulous program than plans that cover out-of-network services. But I understand most plans will tell you they do not want to make that decision to not cover out-of-network because they have participants that live out of the area, they have participants that have been seeing a certain provider for years and years, and they still want that out-of-network coverage. But not covering out-of-network is the number one way to limit the fund's liability. Also, they need to look at whether or not they have a gatekeeper in place for behavioral health. You know, many plans have systems in place for pre-certification and case management for medical admission, but they don't have similar system in place for behavioral health. And as I said, this leaves open a very large door for fraud and abuse. One of the big areas of fraud and abuse is urine drug testing. They need to look at their rules for reimbursing urine drug testing. I'm finding that in way too many cases, plans are paying hundreds and hundreds of dollars for tests that should really only cost 40 or 60 bucks. And they're paying that sometimes multiple times a week. My advice is every health plan should conduct an audit of their expenses related to drug testing and then identify situations where the costs are exorbitant and quickly address those situations by contacting, you know, both the lab that's performing the tests and the clinic or the provider that is ordering those tests. You know, sometimes providers don't know because they don't see the bill. The bill goes to the plan. We've seen huge variations. We've seen a plan is regularly paying every week or sometimes twice a week, six, seven, eight, nine hundred dollars for a drug test for a year Goodness. that should cost 60 bucks. And by the way, testing that person weekly for a year was never necessary. Ah, yes. Okay. Great tip. What about once a worker returns to work? How can the employer or plan sponsor help them avoid a relapse? The best way that an employer can be supportive is when that person returns from being away at treatment out on disability, number one would be to welcome them back to work and say, what can I do to support you? It may be something as simple as, don't expect me to come to the every Friday night happy hour after work. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Don't be shocked if there's alcohol at a company function and I decide to not attend. But more importantly, when that person say, well, I may need to leave early every Tuesday and Thursday for the next three or four months 
to get to my outpatient program and say, absolutely, no problem, you've got it. That's one issue that we run into where people might go away to rehab, been very sincere about treatment, and then suddenly we hear they're not going to outpatient. When we call them up, they say, I can't get there. My job is keeping me. I've got to finish this stuff, and I can't get the treatment. That's how employers can sabotage recovery. So supporting treatment and just being honest with their employee and saying, I'm here to help you. Tell me how I can do that. All right. Well, thank you, Andy Johnson, so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. So Andy brought up a good point when he mentioned that a recovering employee may not feel comfortable participating in social events at work. An employer may want to take a look at their workplace culture. Does alcohol play a major role in your workplace celebrations during work time or after work time? Yeah, Justin. I mean, in other words, employers can kind of move the emphasis away from alcohol and instead focus on the reason for the celebration, Mm -hmm. the event itself. And I mean, even consider not including alcohol in, in most of the events. Yeah, and the challenge can be even more complex for those who are recovering uh, if the job demands a lot of travel or a lot of socializing with clients or other coworkers. That's a great point, Justin. Drinking is a big part of our culture, so, you know, the pressure to drink is huge, and it's another cultural barrier that organizations need to overcome and place less emphasis on. Mm -hmm. The mental health and substance abuse topics we've addressed in this series have led to lengthy conversations among the podcast team members. We hope this episode and this series do the same for you. These topics are surrounded by stigma, and hopefully these episodes serve as a conversation starter for these important issues. We can't leave before saying a big thank you to our special guests for the series, Randy Kratz, Sandy Tellefson, and Andy Johnson. Their valuable insights were enlightening, and we're sincerely grateful to them. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back in your feed next month. If you like what you hear, please rate us on iTunes. It helps others find the podcast. And subscribe to it on iTunes, the Apple Podcast app, Stitcher, or whatever podcast app you prefer, so that our episodes will automatically appear on your mobile device. Today's program is copyrighted in 2019 by the International Foundation of Employee Benefit Plans. All rights reserved. The opinions expressed in the podcast are those of the speakers and not to be used as legal counsel. Please lend us your ears and enjoy this ode to Randy, Sandy, and Andy. Our mental health series comes to an end, but not before we thank three new friends. Addressing issues employers may face on mental health in the workplace. And as our guests shared their talent and time, we realized their names just happen to rhyme. So subscribe if you haven't to keep this podcast series handy and hear expert insight from Randy, Sandy, and Andy. (laughs) (laughs) Like doing Dr. Seuss. (laughs) Fest. It's amazing.